Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sea Change Podcast. I am your host, Jenna Valente, and this is your go-to show to learn about the most inspiring people living, working, and recreating on the American shorelines. And I am so excited to chat with my guest today because we recently reconnected in a bit of a serendipitous way a couple weekends ago when I was home in Maine visiting family and we ran into each other in line at Maine Beer Company and realized that we have some overlap in our work. Um, And I have a feeling that I'm gonna learn a lot today. So it's my pleasure to introduce you all to Harry Nelson, a fellow Mainer and Vice President of Aquatic Markets for Fluid Imaging Technologies. Harry, welcome and thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you, Jenna, for having me. I'm looking forward to this. And, and I, and I should, should say, when Jenna and I met, because um, uh, I know her parents very well, we were also we were at the Maine Beer Company and we were enjoying their oyster celebration. So we were enjoying one of the great fruits of the, of the sea. Yes, that was a really fun event too. It was their 10th anniversary. So they had, you know, live music and of course, great beer and fantastic local oysters. Um, so anyone that is unfamiliar with Maine Beer Company, if you're ever visiting Maine, um, you know, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, and before we jump into the conversation, let's take care of some housekeeping and hear a brief message from our sponsors. So, you know, the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are funded in part by our supporters out in the world. We've got a couple we always like to thank. Dune Doctors from Pensacola, Florida, led by Frederic Barrasset, the owner and operator of that company. They do a lot of great dune restoration work all along the uh, Gulf of Mexico and in the Atlantic coast. If you're a homeowner, a condo owner, a neighborhood association, a city or a county, and you're going to fix your dunes, think about Dune Doctors and find them at dunedoctors.com. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Coastal Engineering Consultants, headed up by Michael Poff. Uh, They're located there in Naples, Florida. Just one of the best engineering firms we've ever ever had the pleasure of working with. Uh, You can learn more about Coastal Engineering Consultants at coastalengineering.com. And our good friend Bill Worsham heads the Coastal Division at LJA Engineering, located here in Austin, Texas, but 28 offices in around the Gulf of Mexico. Great coastal engineering firm. If you're looking for coastal engineering services in Texas and off the Gulf, give our friend Bill Worsham a call. Find them at LJA.com. Okay, so Harry, I am looking forward to learning more about your work But before we go there, I'd like to hear more of your backstory because a big part of this show is not only showcasing the great work that's being done out there, but also highlighting the human aspect behind the work and showing the infinite different paths that we can all take to end up in this space. And I'm interested to know if, are you originally from Maine and what are some of those formative moments that led you to where you are now? Sure. No, I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, uh, on, uh, 15 miles east of Philly and, um, you know, kind of getting to how I ended up in Maine, <clears throat> um, and then to where I am today, we're working for this company and we sell, uh, uh, a very high-end or, or sophisticated piece of scientific equipment for marine ecologists as well as freshwater ecologists. But as, as a little kid, 
um, we would spend a, a couple of weeks on the Jersey Shore um, in Beach Haven, uh, New Jersey. And my brother and I and my sister, she was really little, so she wasn't part of this at the time. You know, we'd spend all day on the beach. Then we'd go to uh, ride go-karts in the evening and we'd do pitch and putt and go to the arcades and all the rides. And so this was sort of the, uh, the shoreline ocean experience. And it drove my parents crazy. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I'll never forget my parents overhearing them. And I was probably seven at the time. My father saying to my mother, you know, dear, I'm really getting tired of the Jersey Shore. I think next summer, let's go up to Maine and, and stay with my, my sister. And I remember my mother goes, well, what are the boys going to do? They're, <laughs> they're going to miss the Jersey Shore. And the Jersey Shore was really, you know, it was exciting. Well, we, the next summer, I think it was 1964. I'm, I'm, I'm 65 years old, so I was nine years old, um, 10 years old. We, uh, we went up to South Bristol, Maine. We had this little cabin that wasn't even on, this little cottage wasn't even on the water. Um, but I remember that, you know, my brother and I kind of objected to it. We, we were gonna miss our friends in, in Beach Haven, um, but we fell in love with Maine. With, with fishing, we would go out lobstering because we came, became very close with a, a family that was five generations of, of lobster fishermen. So that's that was my introduction to Maine, and and um, and really, as I look back over what I've done over the years and what's kind of got me psyched about different things, is um, you know just the, the the ocean and everything that the ocean had to offer, um, and it was the ocean in Maine in this uh, coastal community that you know in 1964 there weren't a whole lot of tourists there. It was uh, it was mostly fishermen. Yeah, pretty remote. And I so the the organization that I work for for my day job is actually based in Sandy Hook, New Jersey. And I hadn't had a whole lot of experience with the Jersey Shore until I took the position um, that I'm in now about three and a half years ago. And so that's been a it's almost like a reverse discovery process of your story, where I you know I spent a lot of my childhood growing up on the main coast and falling in love with the remote rocky shorelines and all that that has to offer um, now to um, in my my 20s you know exploring the the Jersey Shore which is fun and exciting and energetic and they're they're both really wonderful places but it is almost a you need to take a moment to think about what kind of shore experience you're looking for before choosing do I go up to New England and Maine or or explore the the Jersey Shore? Yeah, and, and and Jenna, you know, New Jersey is a it's I mean, it's the garden state. I know people sometimes will joke it's the garbage state. New <laughs> Jersey has a fascinating ecosystems, the pine barrens, uh, the intertidal zones. Um and and when you get down to we have one of our customers uh, is at Haskin Shellfish Lab down off of Cape Cod and you know, on the on Delaware Bay, just it's just an amazing, um, amazing environment, an amazing uh, marine ecosystem. Uh, so it's New Jersey is a really, it really is a cool place. Very different than Maine, but has so much to offer. Absolutely. And so I, I know that you and I are both very well aware of this, but for listeners that might not have as much experience with Maine as we do, it is certainly a hub for outdoor activities. 
And it feels like everyone I know from Maine tends to be an outdoor enthusiast in some way, shape, or form. And um, just a little backstory for listeners, too. I, I went to high school with one of Harry's sons, who is a, an avid outdoorsman. He's a whitewater rafting guide and always seems to be on these really incredible adventures all around the world. And I imagine that Apple didn't fall too far from the tree in terms of his adventurous spirit. Is that an accurate assumption? And what are some of your favorite ways to enjoy the outdoors? Uh, that Jenna, that's very true. And <laughs> his his older brother, I call him a professional ski guide. Um, <laughs> he's actually a, quite an accomplished skier, uh, and he's he's sponsored by a number of different companies. Uh, but to to uh, pay for his skiing habit, he's a commercial fisherman in Alaska on a, on a salmon purse seine boat, and he does that from May until September. Uh, and he's pretty much doing that every day, and he he's out there right now. So. That kid, um, and if you, everybody should Google Willie Nelson, W-I-L-L-I-E, um, <laughs> and it's not, and you get, but you have to put in skier. If you don't put in skier, you're going to get this guitar player. Um, <laughs> you're going to get some really <laughs> awesome music. <laughs> <laughs> but he's quite a, he's quite a, an accomplished athlete, like his, like his brother Alex, and. Um, uh, but you know there he is. He's he's loves the outdoors. He skis all winter long, and then he's um, in in this amazing co- coast of Alaska, fishing uh, all summer long. And it's it's just amazing to, when he does finally call us every now and then, just what he's what he's going through. And then then their oldest brother is is in Wyoming, and uh, he's always skiing, uh, a big time skier in, in Jackson, Wyoming. So. So yeah, they they do a lot of the things that that I love to do, but they all are really kind of doing it all the time, which is really yeah, cool. and they they love it so much that they found a way to make a career out of it, which is that's right, uh, yeah. really respectable. <laughs> um, and so, do you find that your love for the outdoors inspired you to pursue the career path that you're on now? Oh, I, I really kind of fell into this. Um, but certainly my love for the environment um, and my respect for the environment, which really was sort of taught to me in the elementary school I went to. And then when we would come to Maine, you know, really falling in love with with the, with the Maine environment, uh, especially the coastal environment, and the marine environment. Um, and actually, by, by coming to Maine um, uh, for the summers, I fell in love with it. And then when it came time to start thinking about colleges, I knew I wanted to come to New England. A lot of that was because I wanted to go skiing. And that was the other passion of mine. Um, and, and then of course, when you're skiing, you're, you know, you're, you're really in, into the outdoors in the wintertime, which is, makes you, I think, uh, uh, you have great respect for the outdoors because you got to deal with the outdoors and, uh, man, you know, New England in the wintertime is really cold, especially when you go skiing. Um, so I ended up coming to college in, in Maine, uh, went to Colby college and I was really thinking I was going to major in one of the social sciences, but I took a field ecology class my freshman year and then a population dynamics class. And I really fell in love with um, the outdoors, with nature, and also um, with um, you know the whole environmental movement. This is 1972 when I graduated from high school. This is when the Clean Air Act was signed and the Clean Water Act. So it was, and, and Colby had a very new environmental studies major and that's when I had to declare a major. I, I chose that. And it was for a lot of the reasons that I, I guess I kind of just explained. 
And I'm uh, I'm glad that you brought up skiing because now that I've moved away from Maine and I'm not fully convinced I'm not going to make it back there, but you know, my career path has taken me away for a, a number of years. And when I talk to my friends that haven't visited Maine and they think about these really harsh winters um, and ask about my experience, I did my undergrad at University of Maine. And you know, my friends are all like, you know, what did you do in the winters? How did you guys survive? And um, I always talk about skiing. I, every weekend, all of our friends would pack up and go to Sugarloaf mostly, but Sunday River um, and be outside, you know, just bundle up and you're out in the elements and connecting with the outdoors. And I definitely think those experiences were really formative for me as well um, regarding my my now chosen career path to work in the conservation field. Um, and now that, oh yeah. And so now that we've had a chance to get to know you a little bit better, will you tell me about fluid imaging technologies and what's the company's background and mission and what are the kinds of things that you are working on? Sure. So uh, fluid imaging technologies, um, this is our 20th year of being in business. Um, and I joined the company just about uh, 14 years ago. So I'm going into my 15th year. And we make an imaging particle analyzer that's used to uh, study. It was, it, was, it was invented. It was invented at uh, Bigelow Laboratories for Ocean Sciences. It's here on the coast of Maine, which is a world-class, uh, uh, second to none. It's really a mar marine microbial ecology um, research institution that does a lot of other really cool things. But it, their focus is on microbial uh, organisms, uh, viruses, um, uh, bacteria, and, and phytoplankton, and, and plankton, and, and zooplankton. Um, and that, uh, so we've, like I said, we've been in business for 20, this is our 20th year. And um, so it's what an imaging, what an imaging uh, particle analyzer does, and, and actually what the design is, it's a camera, it's a microscope, it's a, a computer and we have software and people use the instrument. It captures digital images of microscopic particles that are in a fluid medium. And um, about half of our customers, maybe a little more, are using the instrument to study uh, uh, whether it's microalgae, also known as phytoplankton or zooplankton, which are a little bit larger organisms and they eat the phytoplankton. And then we also have, um, because of our technology, it's been accepted, uh, you know, it has a very powerful microscope with a camera. So we have applications in what we call uh, the industrial markets. And it's, it's biopharma, um, but any, and mostly biopharma, as well as uh, some chemical applications, some food applications, but it's places where um, whatever type of work you're doing or research you're doing or manufacturing, we are having to do a great deal of microscopy. Uh, and if you can, um, you know, microscopy is is tedious. It can be um, it can be um, boring, I guess you could say, uh, and it's hard without doing digital imaging. It's hard to take in take the information that you're seeing on a microscopic slide, and then uh, counting it, identifying it, and sharing that type of information with other people. So that's so the FlowCam does all of that um, as a digital imaging um, particle analyzer. So as I was listening to you speak about the different things that the FlowCam can monitor, I started thinking about 
microplastics. And I'm wondering if if that is something that the flow cam can monitor or something that you, you're doing or thinking about doing, um, is looking at them, how many microplastics are in our waters. Yes. And, um, and it's, you know, we're hearing about this all the time, and we do have people using the, the flow cam to study microplastics. A number of recent uh, papers have been published uh, talking about exactly what the flow cam is doing. Um, and Jenna, I was just at a conference on the Great Lakes. Um, I gave a talk, and I um, was an exhibitor. And I would say, you know, there are probably four, there are 400 people at the conference. And they would come by our stand and see the flow cam and going, I'm studying microplastics. How can I use the, the flow cam to study microplastics? We get those inquiries every single day. <laughs> um, and it's a challenge. Um, I mean, it really, they're, they're ubiquitous. They really are causing problems all around the world, in some places more so than others. Um, we have a customer in Argentina with... Um, it's sort of the NOAA of Argentina, and their microplastic problem down there in southern Argentina is a huge problem. But yes, people are using this, the flow cam to uh, to look at microplastics. The challenge is that so many of these particles, they don't really have. There's no um, to identify them by just looking at them is can be actually very difficult because they don't necessarily um, have a, a a uniform morphology. They, they, there can be fragments, they can be beads, and there's a lot of other things in, in water systems that kind of look like microplastics. So without getting too much into the weeds, there, there are a num number of different types of, um, of, of imaging technologies that are used to study microplastics. And uh, for us, we're actually, we're, we're, we're partnering with Bigelow Laboratories. They're doing this one really cool microplastic study that we're supporting, but they're also doing some work developing um, a methodology on how you can use a particular um, stain. It's a fluorescing stain that will bind with the polymers of, of, of plastic, of, of just about all the different polymers that you'll find in plastic. And then you can analyze them with our instrument when you have the instrument hooked up with a particular laser. And that laser will interact with the fluorescing stain uh, that will that can bind to the um, to the microplastics, and we can identify it that way um, using the flow cam through imaging and looking at at fluorescent at pigment analysis. Now, what I just said was a mouthful, and it's it's a method that we still are working on, but we're really hoping that we can be successful in working with Bigelow to come up with this method that will really make it, I think, a um, a fairly straightforward method to uh, to study microplastics in that you're finding in water systems. Yeah. And I, I mean, it was a mouthful, but I think it's really interesting and important for us to learn about the different technologies that are out there. And, you know, microplastic pollution is such a complex problem. So it's really great to hear um, that FlowCam is being deployed to monitor a wide range of different things, including microplastics. Um, and that it is an important piece of technology to make sure that we are as well informed as possible about the health of our waters. Um, and I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the device itself. Um, can you speak to what goes in, what is the development process like for the product? Um, and, you know, has it evolved over the years and many different iterations? 
Um, and, you know, like, what does this look like? I'm trying to envision what the flow cam is. Sure. So, uh, well, anybody can go to our website. It's simply www.fluidimaging.com and you'll see what the, what the instrument looks like. But it's, uh, we have, I guess, well, we now have four different instruments um, and it looks like a micro, it's about the size of a microwave oven. And it sort of looks like a microwave oven. It's got this plastic shell um, and it's all enclosed. Uh, and we, you put a sample in um, at the top of the instrument, which will be drawn through a, um, a cuvette, what we call a flow cell. And as the sample goes down through the flow cell, uh, there's a light that are, it's backlit that's behind the flow cell and the camera will shutter. And when it does so, it'll pick up images of these small particles that are flowing continuously in a water solution uh, through the flow cell. Everything is drawn through the flow cell by a, a syringe pump. In most cases, one of our larger instruments has a, has a peristaltic pump. And then um, the, uh, the, the, the product is capturing images of all these little things, um, these little particles, and we can capture them based on their fluorescence. We can just capture particles, whatever's in the, in the, in the water. And then uh, you get this big, uh, what we call a collage file. It's just a bunch of TIFF images and then our software, um, uh, it's called Visual Spreadsheet Software. It um, you can use the software to uh, analyze the, um, the the output, the data that we're collecting, and it's images. And then all the images are these digital images of these small particles, and we we're measuring them. We're getting all sorts of different um, measurement information their area, their, their perimeter, that we have a number of different biovolume measurements. And then we have image recognition software that you can train the instrument to find particles of interest um, that, that you want to be studying. So, and, and in doing so, you're also counting the particles that are, that are in, your, in your samples. So what a lot of people, what it really wasn't developed, what wasn't what it was developed for was for um, counting phytoplankton, counting microalgae, and then with the software, training the instruments so you can identify the different types of, of, of species of algae that you want to be studying. It could be the harmful algae that you're seeing in the water. It could be certain species of cyanobacteria, which is becoming more and more of a problem in freshwater systems. Or you might just, for so many of our customers, they're characterizing, they want to know what does the phytoplankton community look like? And um, you know, I bet you a lot of your your listeners, they might not even know what phytoplankton are. And um, it is, they are these, you know, these microorganisms that are studied worldwide because they're the base of the food web. Um, they're little plants that are in the water and through the process of photosynthesis, they are taking carbon out of the atmosphere and they're turning the carbon into sugars and lipids uh, and using some of the nutrients that, the, that you get in the water through the process of photosynthesis. And in this process, they're also respiring oxygen. So just like the deciduous plants um, or the plants that you're seeing on land, they're giving us half the oxygen that we breathe. The phytoplankton in the ocean are giving the other half of oxygen that we breathe. So it's, it's an, an incredibly important um, ecosystem for people to be studying. And, you know, lucky for us, um, people are studying this in so many different countries. And I think lucky for them, um, there's, there's uh, tools 
uh, like the Flow Camp. There's some other products that are in the market that are similar to ours that people can use to really simplify that, that process of studying microorganisms in water. I'm really glad that you brought up that that fact about phytoplankton contributing to the oxygen that we breathe because I, I feel like that's one of my favorite um, fun facts to to share around with people when I'm talking about the ocean and you know at the very base level why we should care about it is if you like breathing, um, you know we need to make sure that our waters are healthy. Um, and then also for listeners, you know you might be familiar with hearing about dead zones. Um, in like the Chesapeake Bay or the Gulf of Mexico, those are also related to phytoplankton and different types of algae. Um, so that is another reason why it's important for us to be monitoring the populations of those um, and not to get too far into the whole dead zone conversation. But uh, often we see just like a lot of other plants when they are given a lot of nutrients in the form of fertilizer from agricultural fields. Um, they, they grow. Um, and if we get an excess of them, then that can lead to problems with our ecosystem and our, uh, the health of our waters through, um, dead zones when the algae die and, uh, deplete the water of oxygen, which is problematic for things that live in the water and rely on it to the, the oxygen in the water to breathe. Um, yeah. And um, are there any notice, notable or, or interesting trends that you have noticed um, by using the flow cam? So have they helped us? What are some things that might come to mind um, of how they have helped us understand the ecosystem a little bit better or become aware of any problems? You know, we, we, we follow and, and track uh, really the, the way, the best way to, for, for us to sell the instrument it's not for me to say this is the greatest machine you're going to ever buy, but for having um, the scientists uh, read uh, different publications of other scientists that are using our instrument for 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 um, for studying microorganisms in, in water, and whether we're talking marine systems or freshwater systems, I mean there literally have been about 300 papers published on this, and um, you know I was I was just thinking about this. Thank you for for sort of uh, teeing this, this question up. But just recently, um, there was a really interesting paper published by a group of Norwegians that are doing this huge krill study. And krill are uh, those little crustaceans that whales eat, but they're being harvested more and more uh, around the Antarctic. And the, the Norwegians have gotten involved and um, they're, um, they're now fishing for the quill, krill in the Antarctic. But now there, there's a group and they've been around for, I don't know, 20 years or so. And it's a consortium of a lot of different countries that are fishing krill and they wanna be managing um, managing the, the fishery and making sure that it's sustainable. The, the, the Norwegians recently came in and they're they're fishing it much harder than some of the other other countries, but they, they completely realize that they need to make sure it's a sustainable fishery. So they just published a report. Um, they were down in the Antarctic in January and February, which is their summer down there. They had two flow cams on board. And uh, it was just wonderful to read what the Norwegians, and they're funding so much of, of this. And they realized that, that to, in order to make it sustainable, they really need to understand um, 
the interplay between the krill and the organisms that are feeding on the krill, as well as the phytoplankton that the krill are feeding on. You know, there's essentially three different trophic levels there. Um, but it's just really cool to, to look at that paper and see what the Norwegians are doing um, uh, using their science and their technology and using a couple of flow cams to, to study this very important fishery. So that, that, that's, that was one thing. And then there's another paper that was just uh, published by uh, the Dauphin Island Sea Lab uh, in Alabama. And they're looking at um, shoreline restoration uh, and um, how oysters, you know, oyster beds actually protect the shoreline from, from erosion. And they're using the flow cam to see how the transport of larvae will move uh, through the intertidal zone and also along the shoreline and seeing based on currents and um, where, where the, uh, the oyster larvae will, will, will actually um, go to the benthos and to the substrate and attach themselves and start growing. But in order to do this study, they, they were, I think they're looking at 22 million um, oyster larvae that they release into the environment and they need to be tracking these these little critters but you, it's hard to do it just by by standard microscopy so they were actually using this particular stain uh, which and by using the flow cam it made it so much easier for them to track the transport of the oyster larvae throughout the uh, the coastal community along alabama and um, louisiana and that so that was that was one other interesting study and then, but the study that the people that I've, I've really enjoyed working with, it's a group in, um, in Chile, it's called Plankton Andino. And there was this massive um, fish die off of and salmon aquaculture in Chile. Uh, I think it was in 2014 or 2015. And, and, and salmon aquaculture in Chile is, is a big deal. Uh, it's a lot of jobs. That is supporting, and it's in the it's in southern Chile, and they, they actually are doing things quite sustainably and in, in, in a good environmental way. Um, but they had this die off of this one this red tide species that killed uh, you know millions and millions of, of pounds of fish. So they're now using the flow cam to monitor um, when these hab events might these harmful algal bloom events might might take place again. And I think they use the flow cam they. They're running samples uh, over two shifts, and uh, they're also looking for harmful algae that might uh, disturb and, and uh, influence um, different toxins that get into some of the shellfish um, down there as well. And, and people are also doing the same thing, uh, supporting salmon aquaculture in Scotland, in British Columbia, um, and and there's also this big there was this big harmful algal event harmful algal bloom event in Norway. Uh, it's going on right now. And we have some, some customers, potential customers in Norway looking to use our instrument to be monitoring uh, those harmful algae. This is all so fascinating to me. I'm just sitting here like blown away listening to your, your, you speak because, um, you know, you're citing things from fisheries to phytoplankton to oyster aquaculture, fisheries, um, or fish aquaculture and living shorelines. And then you're, you're talking about all of these places that are so far away from each other. And I know that within the environmental community, you know, our big message that's central to everything we do is talking about how interconnected everything is and how something as small as, you know, phytoplankton can impact 
you know, the top of the food chain, but to have this tool in the flow cam to collect the data and really be able to show that I think is amazing and, and so important for us to have this technology moving forward when we're trying to overcome some really complex challenges, um, you know, in the face of climate change. Um, so it's just so cool to learn about that. And I really hope that listeners go onto the website and read these papers and follow along with the work that they're doing um, because it's really cool. And um, hopefully that great work can continue and maybe even partnerships can come out of this, this podcast with anyone that is interested in purchasing one of these or using them or has some research that can be helped by, um, you know, having access to these flow cams. And I imagine that, you know, we heard some of the, the rewarding things that come along with deploying these flow cams, but there have got to be a number of challenges as well. And I'm wondering, what are some of the more, the more challenging things about this line of work? Uh, well, <laughs> so a, lo- a while ago, you had asked about product development. I'll tell you something, Jenna. When, when this all started, uh, and I didn't join the company until it's been in business for five years, but it was it was very slow going at first. Um, truth be told, um, and I've said this to people before, had I known then what I know now about this this instrument, I probably would not have joined the company. Um, it it <laughs> has come such a long way, and um, you know my hat is off. And I think everybody in their company, our hats are off to the early adopters, to some of these amazing scientists that um, you know would work with us and work with um, with Chris Saraki, who started our company, and he and and Kent Peterson, and just a couple of other people in the beginning. It was just a couple of folks designing the instrument, building the instrument, uh, selling the instrument, supporting the instrument, and traveling around the world. Chris would go to China. And with the first customer there, uh, I don't know how long he spent there, but he sort of had to do the final assembly there. Um, and, and But it's it's fascinating that the two of the first three instruments Flowcam's ever built um, are still in use today at, at Bigelow Laboratories. And they're using the instruments all the time uh, in this in these in these, in these different studies that they've been doing for, for now 20 years. Um, you know, it, it, some of the challenges... Uh, and even though that, so now we're at our fourth generation instrument, it, we've learned so much from our customers and technology obviously has evolved and, and really uh, progressed in the last 20 years. So the camera is so much better. It's so much faster. The image resolution is so much better. Our software is so much better. Um, and it's, it's just a much better, more robust instrument. But, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, one of the challenges is it's an expensive instrument. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's my colleague who works closely with me, Francis Birkins, the two of us, we work on, in these markets together and we get really close to our customers. And, and so many times we want them to get an instrument and, um, I'm not, and we, uh, you know, they, it's, it's an expensive instrument. It's hard for people to get the funding to, to use the instrument and to purchase an instrument. And we, we see this all the time. And, you know, we really want to, we, and we do, we bend over backwards and we try to do whatever we can to get, get these folks to get one of our instruments. Obviously, we're in the business to make money, but sometimes it's just so frustrating that, ah, they, they, they just weren't able to get the funding or they didn't get enough. So it makes it, that's, that's a frustrating thing that, that I know both Francis and I 
feel it pains us personally. Um, and I know it says that sounds kind of hokey for a salesman to be saying that, but we really become so close to our customers <laughs> that we that we you know we're always rooting for them. We do whatever we can to see how we can get them uh, one of these instruments. Yeah, and I think that's really a common theme throughout that the conservation space too. Is it? It always comes down to money, and I, I that's even outside of the conservation space. You know, everyone's trying to figure out. Um, you know, how to stay afloat and afford everything that they need to uh, do their job as best as they can. Um, so that's always something to work toward, though. And that's good to have things to work toward. And because we have a lot of conservation professionals that listen to this show, I'm wondering if you could share what it is that keeps you motivated and interested in your work. Well, that very thing that I just explained really I, I did, we I so much enjoy our customers and working with them and and I sh- and I should I should say um, and this is one of the things I love about what our company has done just recently um, you know we've realized our this technology is getting more and more accepted um, both with our product and some of our competitors' products and we've we've just spent the last couple of years developing um, a less expensive flow cam. Uh, that'll still it'll work very much like the standard instrument. Um, we've made the uh, manufacturing a little simpler. The product offering is a little simpler. It'll be easier to use. Uh, it's going to cost about half the price of this the standard instrument. So we're we're pretty excited that um, you know that kind of frustration that we've had. Um, we're going to have a product that it's it's still not going to be really cheap, um, or I should say inexpensive. It's certainly not going to be cheap. Uh, so it's very well made, but we're really psyched that we have this product that will that so many more users will be able to to take advantage of it and, and as they acquire it. Um, but to get to answer your question, I'm, sorry, what was it again? <laughs> it was what keeps you motivated oh. and interested in your work. <laughs> well, well, um, so, so, so as I mentioned earlier. Um, when I went to school, I really got turned on even before going to college uh, to the whole environmental movement. And um, so I'm still doing I'm doing that, um, whatever it is, 47, almost 50 years later after I enrolled in college. Um, I, I, I'm, my role is to sell this instrument. I'm not here as an evangelical environmentalist, although I am. Um, but it's really great to work with people that are, it's, and it's not just people using the flow cam to study the environment, do environmental monitoring, but it's just doing some fantastic research um, that could be supporting the development of different types of algae strains for nutraceuticals or, or maybe biofuels. That's probably not going to work out with microalgae. But the people that we're working with, are, our customers are just really, really exciting great scientists and doing wonderful things um, to help to help the world and, and just to make the, the place a, a better place. And, and, and the other thing that's really cool about my job, or really not my job, it's about our company. I think we're 32 people and we do everything from designing the instrument to building the instrument. We're making the instrument to uh, designing the software, to writing the software, to doing the technical support and the training. Um, so here's our 30, 32 people. We're doing the accounting, we're doing the sales, we're doing the marketing, we're doing the human resource um, administration stuff. So here are some 32 people, 33 people, we're actually hiring a few folks right now, 
we're doing all these things that a huge, gigantic company does. So what it means is we, ha we have a lot of different types of people here. We, we got the guys, you know, doing the software that, you know, they're just looking at three computer screens all day long. I can't imagine how they do that. Um, you know, we have our technical support people actually at the, doing the technical support stuff is a lot of fun because you're really getting close and engaged with the customers. Um, and, and then you have the guys building the instrument and the shipper and, you know, it's, it's a lot of work out there. It's sort of the same thing over and over again. Um, but they, you know, everybody here does a wonderful job and, and as a group, we really have a lot of fun together. We, we have lunches together. We do potlucks all the time. And it's, um, you know, a very interesting group of people that uh, it's, it's just really cool that you can work with a small company that has so many varied um, skills and, um, and different types of work, all working together under one roof and, and working together. And, you know, I think that is a really big deal because work, workplace environment can be everything. Um, in terms of, you know, your happiness and longevity with the company. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Um, and I, it's so impressive that you have such a, a small, tight-knit group that are just doing so much incredible work. And I'm, I'm sure that there are num a number of people listening to this right now that are wondering about some ways that they can either follow along or engage with your work. And I know that you mentioned your website um, but it might be helpful to mention it again. And then if you're on social media or if there are other ways that people can interact um, with you all. Sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, our, our website is, you know, it's uh, it's designed to help people learn more about the flow game so we can sell more. But we do a lot of blogging and we do a lot of social media stuff where we're talking about these very things I was just talking about a few minutes ago. We just had a blog about the um, the Norwegian folks, it's the Institute of Marine Research in Bergen, Norway. And we just had a blog about the work that they're doing with krill in the Antarctic. I think we also blogged about the people in Alabama at the Dolphin Island Sea Lab um, and about the work that they're doing with oyster restoration and reef restoration. And, and we have the same kind of stuff. I'm just, I've just been talking about the flow cam for the aquatic applications that we have, but we're doing the same kind of things in, in the biopharma world. It's not as and fun and sexy as the uh, as, as marine science and freshwater science, <laughs> but but it's still there and still a really important thing that you know parental drug development, where where the flow game is being used to um, to look at, at the drugs that people are developing that um, you know are, are really important to uh, to the health and welfare of so many people. And so when we were catching up in person, I'm going to pivot slightly. Uh, you mentioned that you either have worked or are currently working with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Will you explain what that group is and, and touch on the efforts that you've collaborated with them on? Sure. Um, <laughs> it's great that you bring that up, Jenna. It's something I, um, I really had fun <laughs> doing. I was very proud to do, and I, I'm still doing a little bit. Um, and we'll get political here, but when, uh, when Trump was elected, um, it really raised a lot of red flags in the area of science and in the environment. So um, the Union of Concerned Scientists um, looked at where in what different states can, uh, can the UIC, UC, Union, UOC uh, work to try to, um, to further science and further um, 
um, the protection of the environment. And they looked at states like Maine, where this is, you know, in 2016, where we had a, a Republican senator and a Republican uh, congressman. And they said, OK, we want to target um, some lobbying efforts. And, you know, the Union of Concerned Scientists are lobbyists, just like we have the oil lobbyists. And um, they approached a number of different people in Maine, uh, mostly scientists. And somebody recommended me. I'm not really sure how that happened. Um, I am not a scientist. Um, but uh, a group of us, there were about eight of us, um, got involved. And we first went and we spoke with Susan Collins's um, the, uh, her uh, state program chair, state director, and um, we were talking about the, the Pruitt nomination. This is right after, uh, oh, actually, it was even before Trump got elected. And Scott Pruitt was being nominated to head the EPA. So a group of us uh, went and met with her to talk about uh, Scott Pruitt and uh, how all the things that we didn't like, the idea of, of, of Pruitt being um, the EPA chair or EPA uh, um, uh, I think, yeah, position is. Director. Yeah, director. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I think it's director. Yeah. Anyway, um, we, we did meet with her and, and um, I don't think we necessarily swayed her, but, but he did, she did not vote for uh, Scott Pruitt for uh, EPA administrator. And then oh, yes, uh, we the also, administrator, there it is. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and then we also, um, they, they paid our way. They didn't pay much, wasn't, didn't really cover our expenses, but we went to Washington. It was in April of 2016. There was the March for Science where there were 500,000 people that marched from the mall uh, past the White House to talk about the importance of funding of science. And hey, I will be the first to admit that the more, so much of our funding when people are bought, when scientists are buying our instruments, when they're buying a flow cam, it comes from federal dollars, um, whether it's coming from NSF, which is a National Science Foundation, which does so many wonderful things for not just for science and the environment, but for students and just the understanding of students, but also NOAA and NASA. Um, and, you know, the United States, we is the is the. We have the best educational institutions in the world. We do the best training. We have the best graduate schools. We do the best science. We're the most innovative uh, country in the world. And, um, you know, we've got to fund science. So this is where the Union of Concerned Scientists say, hey, we're going to try to work with certain states and, and try to sway the interest and the, the momentum for, for funding and supporting science. Yeah, and that's really important work. Um, I do a bit of that advocacy, mostly advocacy, but a little bit of lobbying during my day job. And, um, you know, I, I help foster this really great coalition of grassroots advocates that want to have their voice heard at a congressional level. And, you know, our mindset behind that is, you know, that there are oil and gas lobbyists and voices from the opposing side going in and speaking to your members of Congress. So it's our, you know, our almost our civic duty to go in and make sure that our opinion um, is put out there and our voices are heard as well for our decision makers to then, you know, they'll make their own, their own decisions on how they vote on things. But if, if we're not speaking up and putting um, what we know out there and our opinions out there, then we're not going to be considered at all. So I think that that is really great of you to participate in, um, you know, everything that the Union of Concerned Scientists is is welcoming you to participate in. 
Yeah, you're right. Like we do have a responsibility, and um, you know, uh, I'll never forget my my sister. She was a legislative aide uh, in Washington for for Senator Patrick Leahy back in the '80s, and I think so. He had three aides that would do this legislative stuff. I think one might be for science and health and human services and the economy. I don't know what they were, but whatever her job was, she would be the person answering so many of his constituents. Uh, They weren't emails back then. They would be letters. And, um, you know, I remember my sister Mim saying the, 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 the Senator always is listening to people there. They always want to know what people are having to say and, um, you know, they, they take it. It's very serious. And that that was true 40 years ago, 35 years ago. And, and it's it's true today. I mean, we, we don't always like the decisions our our, uh, our Congress people are making, but we've got to We have to try to make our voices heard. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, over time, if you're developing a relationship with their staff and the member, you're it's possible. And it's this has happened with. Uh, the group that I work with, you know, you become a trusted resource for them because they are faced with a lot of different topics and have to make decisions on a, a number of different things during the day. And when that ocean issue comes up, they'll remember um, who their experts are and and look to you to inform their decision. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And they, they do that. They do, they do reach out saying, hey, we've got this issue. Tell us mm-hmm. about it. Absolutely. And before we wrap up, I always like to ask a a series of questions that are a little broader in scope because I find the responses that I get are, well, they're first and foremost, they're all valid and important, but second, um, they vary greatly depending on my guest's experience and and background. So um, I'm curious to know what you think is the most pressing environmental challenge that we are faced with. We all know what that is, and it's climate change. and everybody knows it. It's a fact. Um, and I also think, and I don't want to say technology can solve everything, but we just have to have the wherewithal to deal with it. And, um, you know, when it comes to, here's, a, here's an example. Um, every time going back, I want to say 30 years that the EPA saying we need to raise the uh, gas standards, the U.S. auto industry would complain, say we can't do it, and they always met the standards. And now the, the Trump administration wants to lower the standards, or, or I guess not have the next level of standards kick in. And the state of California is fighting that. And um, and the, the auto industry is saying, you know, maybe we can't meet you know, they're, they're complaining again, we can't meet those standards, but they don't want to roll back the standards to, um, or maybe just not, not accept the next standards. They want to be able to work with the state of California because California is going to keep their standards and they want to keep their standards. The auto industry doesn't want to make two different types of automobiles. That would be crazy. Mm-hmm. But here's an example where technology and even the auto industry is saying, you know, we can do this. Um, Yet the Trump administration is just rolling it back, which is that's just ludicrous. And, you know, we've made we've gone we've made um, auto emissions. They've been cut down. The miles per gallon are have gone way up. So the you know, the the the, um, the auto industry has a lot of issues, but they really have done some great things uh, meeting meeting um, emission standards and also meeting um, gas mileage standards over the years. So I think. You know, the technology is there. And certainly with um, 
with uh, the windmills and all of the solar energy that's being produced. And just remember like five or six years ago, solar panels were so prohibitively costly, yet um, by the government of subsidizing the development of the of the solar industry, the price of, of solar panels has, has come way down where they're, I think there's still tax benefits, which is great, we still need them, but really we've done a great job with technology meeting that need. And you know, I really think that if, um, you know, I was reading about this and actually it was a Union of Concerned Scientists essay published just recently, you know, if we took the same approach to getting to landing people on the moon, uh, and that was really kind of uh, that we did in the 60s. And that was kind of a response to we didn't want the Soviet Union beating us there. And so this became this imperative for our country and our government and science to get somebody to the moon. We could do the same thing with uh, reducing drastically our dependence on fossil fuels and eliminating carbon emissions uh, so that we could uh, really reduce greenhouse gases and revert. Uh, maybe we won't stop climate change, but we could really, really slow it down. Yeah. And I, I think that healthy level of competition is is good. And we're seeing a little bit of, of that around the world with um, different countries banning uh, you know, plastics, single-use plastics, uh, committing to a certain level of renewable energy. I mean, we're even seeing that with wind energy on the Northeast right now. It seems like every state is saying, hey, we're going to commit to producing just a little bit more than the last state that committed to producing renewable energy. So um, even if our, our, you know, president and his administration are not so on board with, uh, you know, climate change and making the drastic policy changes that we need to meet our goals or the goals that are outlined in the the Paris Agreement. Um, you, it's it's still a little heartening to see that on a local level and on a global level, there is still that push um, to do the right thing. And, yeah. and because we like to end on a positive note on this show, I would like to know, what are you hopeful for moving forward? Well, I, I hope I sell a lot of instruments this year because that's my job. <laughs> and yeah, you know, um, I mean, it, it is my job, but it, I, I, I gain so much satisfaction when, especially some of the folks and the customers that we're working with, get the funding to buy one of our instruments. I'm going to Pakistan on Friday and uh, the National Institute of Oceanography there, I've been talking with them for years and years and years. And they finally got the funding to get up one of our instruments. Um, and I'm really, that that was really exciting for me to, to be able to go meet with those people because they seemed like wonderful people and great scientists. But I guess that was, that's the real microcosm. Um, you know, I, I just would, the thing I'm most hopeful for, and I'm, I'm an optimist, um, and that, well, let's, let's talk about climate change. Um, and I, I really do think, and our response to climate change, you know, we have the knowledge, we have the knowledge, we have the, um, um, I think we have the expertise, we just need to have the, uh, the, and we have the wherewithal to do it, but we just have to have the commitment to do it. And, you know, you talked about um, the single use plastics and some people say, you know, what's the big deal about that? Who really cares? Well, they are, they are a big problem. But when it's by banning single-use plastic, you've got to change people's behaviors. And by changing people's behavior, hopefully you're going to change their attitudes and get them to go, you know, maybe I, I need to start thinking about this. I need to start thinking about how wasteful I am. And, um, 
you know, bike to work instead of drive your car. It, but just if we can get the attitudes changed um, and we you really need to have, sometimes you need to have an incentive, maybe this stick to force people to do it. Um, but we've done all these things all these years and we're always, I think we're always getting to a better society. So, um, so I'm, I'm hopeful for that. And I think that's a really great point to make too. When we're talking about climate change, it can often seem like it's too large of a problem for any one individual to solve. And I think a lot of people will shut down because of that, but it's so important to note that we need to be coming at this from all different angles and using all different tactics, large or small. So from sweeping large policy changes to your individual person being more mindful of how much waste they're producing. Maybe you bike to work a few times a week or, you know, you commit to using, um, you know, not using single use plastics. We're going to need an all hands on deck situation here to um, slow, slow this, this thing down. There you go. Yeah. And so we'll actually wrap up with a two part question um, because we, you know, everybody that I, I welcome onto the show, I, I have so much respect for and love to hear your insights. And I'm wondering what the best advice you've ever been given is. Well, um, when I first got out, when I got out of graduate school, I went, so undergraduate for environmental studies. And then I went to graduate school for, for business. I got a master's in business and I really got excited in the world of, of manufacturing. And I could talk about that at length, why that was interesting to me. But I went to a, uh, I worked for a big computer company that was making um, disk drives. This is in the early eighties, 1983 data general. And I was a manufacturing intern and I got there and I didn't know much about computers. Well, hardly anybody did, but we were making them. But I was a, uh, my first job there was as a production supervisor. And I had this group, it started out with six, but the product they gave me really took off. And I just, my mentor there, he wasn't my boss, but he was my boss's boss. And he would meet with me all the time. <laughs> a lot of part because I, I, I was trying really hard, but I, I was always trying to be just so nice to everybody. And uh, I just, I, I'll never forget him, him saying, you know, how when we have these meetings, you need to be a little more assertive. You need to stick your neck out and, um, <laughs> and say what you think you're going to do, and then you need to do it. And, and by doing that, you've got to kind of work, work hard and, and be tough. And, but the other thing, um, we would make some mistakes. I would make some mistakes. And he always said, own up to them immediately. Show, mention your mistakes before anybody else notices them. Um, and, and just, just be a, an honest person. Um, and I, I certainly, it's, it's interesting. I went from my, um, my manufacturing, I did that for really 15 years and I kind of had a midlife change of, of things I wanted to do and got into sales and really fortunate that I worked with another marine science company before I came here. Um, but you know, if you're going to be, everybody's going to be, you're, you're selling yourself no matter what, whether you're selling your ideas or selling a product. Um, but you just really need to be genuine and by being genuine, you've got to be honest. You've got to be, um, want to be assertive with your thoughts and ideas, um, and be a, 
um, just an honest, genuine person. And that's going to get you a long way. And then on the flip side of that, because we have a number of listeners that are either young professionals or lifelong learners um, and just the curious people among us, what advice do you have for our listeners? Sometimes I'll go to some of these conferences and we'll be working with with students. Um, and I'm, I'm really, uh, really honored to get to address them. But if you're a young person thinking about what your career is, um, I'm looking at my career right now. You know, I just turned 65. Um, I'm doing the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. I enjoy coming to work every single day. And I'm doing it in part for, t- for two things. Number one, what we were talking about earlier, the people I'm working with both here at the company and then our customers. Um, but I've also, um, I've gotten on board with a successful company. And, um, you know, that's really, it's really hard to, to do. You, you really have to get lucky. The, the company I was with before, it was really exciting, wonderful people, wonderful customers. We weren't successful and it wasn't by any fault of our own. We, we tried really hard and the technology didn't quite work. Um, but I got lucky when I was, when um, I, I got hired by Fluid Imaging. Like I said earlier, it was tough in the beginning, but it finally worked out. And, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that I contributed somewhat to that. But, but you know, to find the right, um, the right opportunity can, can be hard and it can kind of be lucky. And, and there's, a, there's an analogy, and I think it might make sense right now. Uh, I'm a big sports fan, and our Boston Bruins did not quite win the, uh, they didn't win the Stanley Cup. But, um, you know, I think <laughs> life and, and kind of your career can sort of be like a hockey game. It's kind of chaos. Lots of stuff's going on. Um, and, you, you know, when you get the opportunity, when the goalie's out of position, you need to be able to score. Um, and if there's chaos, uh, but if, if there's chaos and you can start to control things and you've, you've prepared yourself and you have the skills to take advantage of an opportunity when it presents itself, you know, that's, that's a big part of the, uh, the answer to, to that question, I think. Well, fantastic advice and great conversation. Harry, thank you so much for spending time with me today and for all of the important work that you're doing. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks. It's not me. It's, it's so many of our people here at this company. They, everybody, you know, we, we're all in this together. And I would also like to thank the listeners. If you like this show and want to hear more, Subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you listen to podcasts. Rates and reviews are always appreciated. And you can find us on Facebook at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and on Twitter at Coastal News 365. You can find me personally on Twitter at Yenna Benna. It's Y-E-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-A. And then it's the same thing on Instagram, but the Yenna has three N's in it. Um, So find us online and let's chat about our beautiful coastlines.